Here we are in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. Jesus told this story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. And one day a report came to the manager that the manager came to the manager. Sorry, I am lost here. One day a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money. So the employer called him and said, what's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you're going to be fired. The manager thought to himself, now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches and I'm too proud to beg. Ah, I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. So he invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, well, how much do you owe him? And the man replied, well, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. And how much do you owe, employ my, owe my employer? He asked the next man. Well, I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat, was the reply. Well, here, the manager said. Take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. And the rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of light. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then, when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you into an eternal home. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, then who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you are not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved by money. This is the gospel. Simple. Buy friends with money so you can go to heaven. <laughs> you want to come up and pray? We're done. <laughs> Isn't that weird? It sounds weird like that. This is a weird passage. All right, let's just think about the story. That This is a parable. This is interesting. Think of the different genres of scripture we're looking at today. Old Testament prophecy, Old Testament poetry. Now we're into some really serious uh, parable in the gospel. That's like its own genre in a genre. So Jesus' parables are... Mysterious. We're told in one place that they're meant to confuse us if we're not seeking the kingdom. So this is goofy. Let's think about what's happening. All right. We start with the steward or the manager. So he is probably a slave. That's the whole idea, right? Dula, servant, slave. He's the guy who has... It's it, maybe not because he's getting fired, but we think of slavery in a different way. So... Slavery for him was he works for this guy. He might get fired from his place of, of position or his authority or his job, but he's still totally owned by the master, okay? Point being, he's probably owned by him. 
And he doesn't just need to do grunt work because he's a slave. Think, for instance, of the story of Joseph. In the, way back, way well before this, Joseph is a purchased slave who ends up being the second in command of the entire nation of Israel, Egypt. Still a slave. See what I'm saying? So this guy's got power. He's a manager of this property. Um, the big thing to remember is he's not his own. The master owns him. It's common in Palestine, this setup. Remember Jesus' other parable of the wicked tenants? Jesus tells this other story where the idea is there's a plot of land, a distant owner hires people to come and manage the, the vineyards and the wine press and all of that, and then they don't do that good of a job, and that's the whole story. We'll save that for another day. But the point is, this setup, a distant landowner putting people in charge of his land to make it profitable is very common in Palestine, in Israel in that area. So they're supposed to, this manager was supposed to make the land produce fruit. All right? Our New Living, so we just read this out of the New Living Translation. It says that the owner is mad at him for wasting his money. Other translations in the Greek, this wasting is definitely, it's definitely nuanced. Not with he's just being uh, dumb and neglectful. It's he's being, he's an embezzler. <laughs> so he's, it has the nuance of crime. Um, he's a bad guy. He's being shrewd and deceitful in his bookkeeping to his own end is the idea. So yes, that wastes money, but it, it's, the nuance is more criminal than that, okay? No boss wants their worker cheating, right? That sucks. So he says it's over, we're moving you on. Uh, this isn't working well, you're a bad fit for the team. So he's bumming. He says, shoot, where am I gonna go? What am I gonna do? I can't dig ditches. I need to figure something out. And so this light bulb comes on his head, you know? He's got this brilliant, for him it's like, a, it's an olive oil lamp. Slowly comes on in his head. Still, it's an idea. He gets this great idea. And he's like, I know exactly what to do. I'm, I'm entrusted with a bunch of cash here. Let's work that to my advantage. So, what, what's his plan? All right. I did that one time, by the way. I have to do this. I would, okay. I worked at a ski hill, and I got to go snowboarding for free. So that's why I worked there. So ski hill was called Alpine Valley. It's the ski hill that Stevie Ray Vaughan crashed his helicopter into and died. So, I worked the taco stand there. And when my buddies were running, when they were snowboarding, and I was working the taco stand, I had to make super nachos. And man, did I make. I used the resources of Alpine Valley's kitchen to make a lot of snowboarding friends with super nachos. Does that make sense? <laughs> because you're only supposed to put so much on them. And they were, I got, I got harshly rebuked. Anyway, that was it. I was using somebody else's resources to create some social beneficiaries, or to make myself a beneficiary. That's what he's doing. He's saying, okay, these other people owe my master money. I will just give them a massive discount on their debt. And who wouldn't want that? Does two things. One of them's pretty easy to see. We've already said it. If I'm in charge of you know, you've borrowed out a thousand bucks and you've got to pay it back and you don't want to pay it back. And I come to you and I say, hey, I'm in charge of that debt repayment. All you've got to pay back is 500, don't sweat it. Are you stoked or not stoked? You're stoked, okay? 
So that's what he's doing. But I think the more devious side of it is they know that we're cheating the system, right? They know they owe the master 800 or 1,000 or whatever. And so when he gets them to sign on, he also implicates them in the crime. So if it were to go bad for him, even worse, he could either blackmail them or even say, look, we're all in this together. You did it too. That's very possible because the story portrays him as kind of a criminal guy, an embezzler. So here he is. The books get cooked, and just when you think that the boss is going to catch him and chop his head off, you know, they did that a lot back then, chop your head off. Instead, the boss catches him and he says, man, I got to hand it to you. That's pretty good. That's pretty good cheating me. <laughs> well played. That's really crazy. He actually appreciates the crook's way of operating. So you get this super weird line in verse 9. Here's the way it says for us, verse 9 for the new living that you have on the liturgy page. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then, when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you into an eternal home. Okay, I guarantee I'm not the only person who's just, that is a weird sentence to come from Jesus. My parents always said, you can't buy friends. I think the Beatles said that, right? <laughs> you can't buy me love. <laughs> like you, can't, it's, it's, you just aren't supposed to do that. And then the idea too is, your worldly, he throws that negative term of worldliness onto the kinds of resources. It's like, use the stuff that worldly people would be attracted to to make friendships, and then, then they'll be in heaven with you. <laughs> so weird. Okay, here's the New English translation of the same line. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by how you use worldly wealth, so that when it runs out, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes. That's even worse. <laughs> Here's the King James. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. <laughs> so good. You know, it, it doesn't even soften it. It's like, use the mammon of unrighteousness to buy heavenly friends. Here's uh, a scholar named William Barclay. Uh, he says this, and I tell you, make for yourselves friends by means of your material possessions, even if they have been unjustly acquired, so that when your money has gone, they will receive you into a dwelling which lasts forever. Now, Barclay is trying to walk you through the Greek. You see the King James doing the same when they call the mammon or the money unrighteous money. That's in the Greek. Even if it's unrighteous money, even if you got it by cheating, use it for making friends so you'll have them in heaven with you. All right. If anybody ever tells you to just read the Bible, believe it, and do it, say, okay, all right, fine. Just read this verse with me and tell me what am I supposed to do? <laughs> like, am I really supposed to do that? It calls us to interpret it. We have to interpret the passage. All right. We have to remember parables are a unique genre and they're a unique style of teaching. One thing to never do with a parable is to start hanging a whole bunch of theology on little details. So we'll just say that. Be careful to do that, not do that. 
Yes, the Bible is true and it is accurate, and Jesus did say words probably exactly like this, if not these exact words, right? This is what Jesus said. That's true. But the question remains for us, what do these words mean? Not just did he say it, right? What do they actually mean? Because surely the rest of the New Testament does not allow us to think Jesus is saying here, to buy, if you buy friends with money, then you go to heaven where they'll be, as though that is what makes heaven possible, right? That's not possible with Jesus' theology. So what's he getting at? Okay, this is difficult. So that's the reason it's difficult to interpret. And then here's the other thing. I think, man, this is a multi-layered text, and I think there's four lessons in it that Luke is playing with. And so when those are all at play, each one of us is going to ping on different ones and that can get complex too. So I'm simply going to lay out the four lessons that I think are here and let it, let it lie and hope and pray that the Spirit will help connect us into your life and into your heart. There'll be a couple points along the way where I think you can see some connection. But here's the four different lessons that I think he's saying in this very weird story. It's, it makes sense at a certain level, and then at another level, it's like, but that shouldn't come from Jesus. <laughs> so here's the first thing that I think it is saying. <laughs> Verse 8 echoes an observation of Habakkuk, I think. Habakkuk is famous for, why, why so long, o Lord? how long, O Lord? Why are you going to keep allowing these bad guys to win while your faithful ones lose? And I think that's an echo here. Uh, verse 8 is an echo of that idea. These money-hungry power mongers are so good at getting the most out of this world. Why? The children of the world are, are wiser in their generation than the children of light. I think that's a little tighter to the text. So the, the children of this world are really good at this world. And it really works well for them. And the children of light are not good at this world. It doesn't work well for them. Luke's point. How awesome would it be if Christians put their time and talents and resources to producing goodness as others are at producing wealth? The children of this world get how the world works and the world works in a way to always produce and secure wealth. And it's so good at it. What if we could get that good at producing goodness? And I would move toward the fruits of the Spirit as goodness. Using all of our faculties, our ingenuity and wisdom, our engineering, our creativity, everything we have, but always employing it not to gain more wealth and secure it, but to bring about the ways of life of God and his spirit in this world. What an amazing thing that would be. I think the parable is teaching that. I was part of a business startup once with my dad. Uh, I was not in charge, I was just an employee. But there were only two of us plus my dad. So I got to watch it go from there up to the 50 plus employees and a receiving shipping dock and the whole spiel. It took every single ounce of my father's energy, day in, day out, seven days a week, always thinking about that business. I'm not saying that's a negative thing, it's just a matter of fact thing. When you are invested in trying to build something like that, you, it's an all-in sort of thing. He would not have been able to build what he did if he was just working at it a little bit in his spare time. It was a whole hog effort. 
What if we put that all-in kind of effort into Christian lives? We put a ton into building businesses, building reputations, building careers, building resumes. All right? Am I suggesting so stop that? No. I don't think, so. I don't think that's the call at all. The question that this text is going to continue to ask us is, what is the point? Why are you doing it? Why are you building a business? Why do you care about your... And if the point is, because life could be better for me than it is now, and if I do it well, it will be better for me than it is now. Right? There's at least two or three for me, for me's in there. If it's because I know that the wealth is from God anyhow, and he's entrusted me to use it for others, and so I'm going to use it for others and for the benefit of other people, that's a very different motive, okay? So stay with that. Are we only trying to become as profitable as possible, or are we actually building an eternal life with God as we do business, as we do school, as we do family, as we live? I like that language of, are we building an eternal life with God? I was given a wrong-headed notion that an eternal life with God comes in a moment when you pray something. And that it just has to do with where you go. But Jesus says, I'm the way. So it's an eternal way of life with God. And Jesus says, the way of life in the kingdom, it's not an option. It's how the kingdom works. There is a king. His name is Jesus. There will be no greed in the kingdom. There will be no need to or reason to hoard up stuff and protect it so oh, I don't get hurt. Right? It won't be that. Because we'll know God is full provider, absolute benefit. He's always with us. All is grace. And so he invites us to start living that way now. And we say, but, but, hey, hey. And he says, it's okay. Don't fear. I'm with you. It's going to be really weird, but you actually don't need that stuff the way you think you do. You're actually just renting it. I don't care if you have a title with Fidelity National. That, it's made of paper. <laughs> Did you notice? You know what I mean? God is pretty smart. I've been alive for 40 years, and I've tried to think about how much time I've spent working so that I can have more stuff, better comfort, more convenience, hobbies, sports, you name it. I've spent a lot of time trying to advance the comforts and securities in my life. I think Luke, our writer here, and really Jesus are asking us to consider the truth that our Christianity will actually start to get very, very real when we start to enter into it full-fledged. And it will always be relatively confusing, mildly, if not super annoying, if not just downright a pain if we're trying to have a little bit of part-time Christianity on the side of what really matters, which is advancing our position in the world, or security. Can you see it? All right, that's good. I think he wants us to see Christianity will get very real when we actually want it as much as comfort, Second, so that's the first main point. What are you actually putting your life toward? All right. It's, and again, you know, I don't need to go, I'll just keep saying it over. Here's the second point. Verse 9 teaches that your material possessions should be used to build social bonds with other people. 
Okay, here's where we can't hang on the little nitpicky details of the parable. I, I'm literally just going to say, it just doesn't mean buy your friends with money and then you'll be in heaven with them. I think what we have here is a picture into the first century economy of patron benefactor. And so it's much less of a Citibank card and, you know, put the chip in and hope it works this time, but I've got money somewhere. It's more who you know. So you're, you're a benefactor or a patron. Your social relationships are how you advance or work in the world. It's your, it's your money. And so when you give charis or doron, give, we translate charis and doron into grace. Sometimes we think about it purely as a theological term. It, it is just to give. And in that day, if I give Victoria a gift, she receives that gift and sees maybe value in the gift itself, but also sees value in the giver. It says something about my character. And now Victoria feels, as a first century woman, an obligation, but not in the way you might think today. She feels a desire to re-give. Now, if she's a slave and I'm, a benef- I'm giving, she couldn't give me money. What she'll give is gratitude, service, something like that. And what it does is it creates a social bond. And the more of those kinds of well-meaning, good-intentioned social bonds I have, the better I can survive in a world that's built on that kind of economy. So he's tapping in here and he's saying, be giving toward neighbor, not secluding for self. Because that's the way of the kingdom. All of Jesus' parables, I think, are inviting you to glimpse into, almost ask, imagine if, imagine what it would be like if you were in the kingdom. It's going to be like this, where your stuff is used to build social bonds with everybody. So here's what happens. Everybody has everything you need, and everybody's really tightly connected. Man, doesn't that sound like heaven? You have everything you need, and you're totally tightly connected and safe and loving relationships. There it is, right? That's the heartbeat of humanity. That's the heartbeat of life. Isn't that what we all desperately long for? Jesus says, yeah, come with me. Let go of this stuff as the focus of your life. The rabbis say the rich help the poor in this world, but the poor help the rich in the world to come. Ambrose of Milan in the fourth century commenting on the rich fool who built bigger storage barns. We've already preached this text in, in our group here sometimes since last December. But the rich fool who's got, he's like, man, this is a banner year. What am I going to do with all my crops? I'll just build more warehouses and keep all this stuff for myself. Jesus talks about that as being stupid. Ambrose, one of our church fathers, fourth century, picks up on that. He's writing about it. And he says, the bosoms of the poor, the houses of the widows, the mouths of children are the barns which last forever. See what he's saying? To use your stuff to help people who really need it, it actually makes you into an eternal being instead of just a carnal being that will just go and stay. More concretely in our day today, I think you see a basic dichotomy here. You can use your wealth to advance your life and stop. 
or you can use your wealth to bless others. We can make life easier for ourselves, or we can add friends and neighbors into that mix. I can think of several people who have helped me financially along the way. Allie and I broke, had one car, goes down, we cannot afford paying for it, and a friend just gives graces 500 bucks to help us. And it was a genuine hour of need, like it, we, we were in trouble. Other times, probably each one of you has a moment, I hope you do, and if not, you can become that moment to others. A time where you genuinely couldn't have moved forward if somebody hadn't helped you with some finances or stuff. That's part of how this works. When I was taught these things, I had an internal instinct. I said, but, but wait, I'd hear pastor say what I'm saying to you now and say, but wait, I've got to feed the kids. I've got a mortgage to pay. Like, what are you saying here? All right. I got to send them to school. I'm not going to just not do that because we're going to live in a hippie commune and call it Christianity. That's stupid. I have to focus on being profitable. I have to save for the future. I need a retirement. I think those things are true, but here's the jam. I think that those things get highly exaggerated by you and me, wealthy, extensively comfortable Americans. So here's what it looks like. The Holy Spirit today through the scriptures here, I think together with you, calls us to be honest, to actually get serious. I believe God's inviting us to stop excuses. Will we persuade God with our excuses? I have these moments where I'm thinking to myself and I'm like, that's, a, that's genius. That's a perfect way to put it. And then I imagine saying it to God. <laughs> and it's like, no, he'll see right through that. <laughs> well, yeah, God, I slaved away. My wife and I both, we had to. Both jobs work, working our tails off so that we could have all the money that we needed. We couldn't have survived without it, God. You know that. I had to. I had to. Yeah, we had to neglect family. We did neglect our kids, definitely. But look, I, well, we never even met our neighbors. And yeah, we did bathe it all in the very popular language of being super busy and having a lot going on. We did. We did. But it was brutal. But God, we needed to eat. We needed shelter. What am I going to do, run around naked all winter? You know, and I think God is going to say to me, Ben, pay attention to what, walk through your freaking garage right now. <laughs> all right? Just walk through your garage, Ben, and have a conversation with me about how much you desperately need. And I want you to count up, Ben, how many hours you worked and how many times you told everybody you were too busy to talk to them, to hang out, to do anything. For what? That snowboard you haven't ridden in 10 years, the mountain bike you haven't touched because you've gotten too fat, because you needed all that stuff in the fridge too. I think God looks to me and says, Ben, just be more honest with yourself. I can see right through it. The amount of money that you actually needed to provide shelter, food, and clothing for your family, even education and entertainment, was a very small portion of the amount that you acquired, Ben. Were you providing or were you pleasuring? Who do you think you're fooling? Me? God? <laughs> and then like a loving master and a friend and a mentor, God says, yes, you do need stuff to get on in this world. 
but you thought you were earning it and you thought it was all for you and you forgot that, that it was from me so you got possessive about it. And then you saw yourselves as owners, not as renters. And you got really obsessed with comfort and you started to trust it and love it and think that if you could just have more, you'd be okay. And in the end, if you had used your money and your stuff to bless others and to build relationships with your neighbors, you would have been a lot more alive. And you'd be a lot more alive right now, says God. Didn't you feel dead most of the time when you were in all of that stress and enslavement to money? Didn't you feel dead in it, God would say? I think he would. William Barclay again writes this. He says, possessions are not in and of themselves a sin, but they are a great responsibility. And those who use them to help their friends have gone far to discharge that responsibility. I like that. Third, in verses 10 and 11, we've encountered this idea before. We don't have to spend long on it, but it's a big one. But we've, we've heard it a lot before. The idea is that you can't be trusted with a lot if you can't be trusted with a little. So if you've ever been responsible for a team or building you know, a group or whatever, you need helpers. You, you look at how people pay attention to little responsibilities, and then when they do them, you're like, okay. So pretty basic concept. We get that, but notice how Jesus blows it up into eternity. I think he's saying that on this earth, you have a lot of stuff that isn't really yours. God's the master, you're the steward. They don't come with you when you leave. You get to borrow them for the time you're here. It's your responsibility, so you're, it's fairly small. I'm, I'm actually in charge of everything, and, I'm, and I own it all. <laughs> That's pretty big. You're here for a, a, a brief amount of time and you have a little tiny bit of stuff that you're responsible for, so that's where you're at. And if you use it, if you spend your time working to increase yourself and your own, you become that kind of person. You become self-obsessed. That's not the kind of people who live in the kingdom. It won't work, like trying to breathe underwater for a human, not advisable. <laughs> so you can't enter the kingdom now and you can't enter it later if you want to hang on to that self-obsession. It's literally the opposite of the gospel of Jesus who showed you what real life and eternal life looks like. That's really abrasive, but it's also true. But, Jesus is saying, when you fully enter the kingdom of God and a restored life, you won't be renting anymore. You will have the things that actually really do belong to you. Like, Ellie, you, my wife, will sit before Almighty God himself with possessions that you own because you made them with God. But you will have earned or built or created by participating with God an eternal characteristic of honesty, patience, loving kindness, all those fruits of the Spirit. They don't die. You're resurrected with your scars and your fruits of the Spirit. You take bushels with you if possible, right? That's the jam. That's the idea. Treasures are in heaven. All that stuff. 
At the heart of this is your heart and what it loves. What excites you more, honestly, you alone in front of a mirror? What gets you riled up, the thought of having plenty of money or the thought of being deeply wise? You know? <laughs> the thought of being, the thought of going on amazing vacations, driving high quality vehicles, having updated technology, and enjoying nights out with good drinks and good food. Or the thought of being humble, patient, kind, and free from all desires for wealth. Which one really lights you up? I have a coupon for each one. Which one do you want? Nights out, new Ferrari, all paid for. It's all free. You know? <laughs> I know. It hits hard. And here's the final punch. Fourth, verse 13 lays down, I think, the most pointed, punchy revelation, one of them in the entire Bible for me, for us today, for sure. It makes me squirm. It makes me uncomfortable. I want a middle road. And Jesus says, there's not a middle road, son. Sit down. There's one way. And there's another way. That's it. One master, not two. Brass freaking tax. You cannot spin this with your most eloquent thinking. It's just that brutal. Remember, back to slavery. We talked about Philemon a few weeks ago. On our website, on our Facebook, I posted, read that article about slavery in the first century. It's mind-bending. Slavery was about being completely 100% owned. I can have a job and a part-time job and I can use my time the way I want to my own ends. If you're enslaved, if you're a doula, you're, you're a servant, you're owned. 100% of your minutes are owned by somebody else. That's the idea. No part of your day is free to choose what you want. He had one job, one master. All of his energy belonged to the master. The idea is that serving God cannot be an add-on to your life. And so we don't go serving God through kind of that old conservative, like serving God is when you're in the church building and doing nice stuff. It's not that. It's serving God and seeing it as the self that glues every part of every day together. Whether you're building businesses or working at Wall Street or whatever you're doing, it's all serving God. And serving God is seeing your wealth in this way. As for for God and for others, not for you to heap up and hoard up and all that. Okay? I think this uh, is connecting for me. However holy we feel, we cannot mask the symptoms any better than makeup can mask leprosy. We have a dark belief that if we're able to blend just the right amount of Christianity and love for money and wealth, I will be able to create kind of this perfect, customized Christianity where I can still have the great things of this world, but also the best things of God. I can do it. This is the story of, of your era. It's the story of our day. I'll give you 12 books on this right now from current pastors saying, this is ancient Gnosticism alive today. We believe ourselves to be the full seat of authority. I can identify who I am however I want. I can create who I want. I am who I want. And I take part of some Christianity. I take part of this and I put it all together and it's just going to work perfectly. And I say this. When you do that, it's like, it's like mixing poison and water and hoping for a tasty iced tea. 
and you drink it, and the symptoms become unmistakable. Well, that dude drank strychnine. He's on the ground puking. Like, it's pretty obvious, right? I say that the symptoms that we are doing this all over, are they're so blatant, and we're really good at masking them, but I say it's like putting makeup on leprosy. And here's what I mean. We're stressed, we're tired, and we're disconnected from our neighbors. We're alone, we're embracing ways of life that make it almost impossible to have relationships. Relationship with neighbors that Jesus said are located very close to the source of true life. Yes? What's it all about? Love your neighbor. And I'm like, I, I, I gotta schedule that for October. I got a lot going on. That's a symptom. And I try to mask it with, I'm busy. And I've got boils, and my eyes are oozing, and I've got a little bit of makeup on to try to make, and it's not working. It's a big text for me. I hope you can tell. <laughs> I think most telling is that we are utterly terrified of losing our money. Watch every leader in our nation and listen to all of their promises. Every single Democrat, every single Republican, every one of them. They're pitching everything through the lens of, I will make you wealthier and more comfortable. It's just that, it's just what we're desperate for. One last quote, servant cannot properly attend to the claims of God and wealth as his masters. Undivided loyalty is demanded. It is just not possible to pursue them both as goals in your life. Your temptation to do so will leave you clinging to one, that's the Greek word, you'll cling the master and despise the other. Are you clinging on to something that lives eternally? Are you clinging on to something that's made out of carbon? Pray with me. Father, thank you for loving us in the way that you have. Thank you for helping me in my own life learn that you are not an angry dictator who wants to kill me. But you're a loving creator who is constantly through your spirit teaching me how your world works and what it means to be truly alive. As I've studied your word and served in your church, I've come to the belief that money is the greatest God of our day, especially in our land. And so I ask that through your spirit you would protect every man, woman, and child in this church. That you would be a powerful voice in their ears and in their brains and in their hearts and deep in the souls of everybody here, that you would help us hear your voice as Satan tempts us with money and fake lives that will be safer if we have. Help us to see safety in our bondedness to you and your people, and help us to trust it and to trust you. Thanks for giving us your word, and thanks for loving us and being so incredibly gracious. You created an eternal social bond with us, and we are forever grateful. Thank you. We love you.